welcome to the MI Hunting Podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in as always. So on this episode, we're going back to the conservation news desk. It's been a while since I've done one of these segments. And I figured on this episode, we're going to basically go over four different stories that I found over the past month to highlight for you. So if you enjoy this episode, make sure you hit that like button, subscribe to the channel, share the show with your friends. It's one of the best ways to make this channel grow. If you want more, head on over to mihuntingpodcast.com where you can get all the podcast episodes available, videos, articles, all in one place. Head on over to the Join Us tab, become a member. Your membership supports this show directly, as well as grants you special access to members-only live stream, discounts to all items within the store for the life of your membership, as well as members-only giveaways. And with that, let's head on over to the Conservation News Desk. so this first one is directly from the department of natural resources this was posted on january 17th dnr launches deer management initiative to tackle contemporary challenges so let's get into this michigan department of natural resources in collaboration with the michigan national resources commission is initiating a comprehensive deer management initiative aimed at evaluating and responding to the present day deer management challenges the initiative seeks to develop recommendations to address these challenges and ensure the sustainable and healthy management of the deer populations and their habitats across the state. Goes on to say, in the Lower Peninsula, the DNR faces significant hurdles in managing deer populations due to declining hunter numbers and how that affects traditional management. Continued changes in land use patterns with a high percentage of privately owned land, which can limit access to hunting lands. Additionally, bovine tuberculosis and chronic waste disease are established and are affecting deer populations in some areas of the region. In the Upper Peninsula, habitat concerns, changing weather patterns, and a diverse array of predators present different challenges from those in the Lower Peninsula. These combinations of factors have not been experienced in deer management in recent years. A comprehensive and inclusive approach is critical. The DNR is actively engage with stakeholders from various natural resource organizations as well as tribal partners to develop recommendations that acknowledge these challenges and work towards improved deer management in the state. DNR also seeks to involve unaffiliated individuals who share concerns about deer management and to encourage a far-reaching representation discussion. So basically in a nutshell this initiative is going to be basically uh, a collaboration between the DNR, tribal leaders or representatives, as well as everyday individuals or the general public um, as well. So we got a quote here from Chad Stewart, the big game specialist. He goes on to say, the deer management initiative process is poised to guide recommendations and lay a framework for future deer management changes. We are looking forward to working with our traditional stakeholder organizations and partners while we are welcoming creative new voices. It is important that none of us are tethered to a single idea, that we are willing to explore novel and diverse solutions to enhance our deer herd 
and effectively address the challenges ahead. Goes on to say, we will be developing two separate groups, one for each peninsula. Since the challenges in each area are unique, our focus with each group will be to pull together people with different perspectives and experiences, but a common passion for improving Michigan deer herd for future generations. Uh, so one thing with this too, I, I did hear uh, uh, Chad Stewart talk about this uh, in an interview with uh, Michigan Out of Doors. Uh, basically, you know, he kind of reiterated that, you know, this is a group of individuals that will be selected that they will come up with ideas, make recommendations, but they're not necessarily, uh, you know, going to be dictating regulation. You know, it is going to have to go through a approval process and review um, by the DNR, by the management agencies uh, before anything potentially goes into any type of regulatory. So it's not that they're going to be setting new rules and regulations for the upcoming season. This is just a kind of a you know, a think group to come up with ideas and, and make some potential recommendations uh, to be considered going forward. So when they go on, the page goes on to say those interested in participating in this vital initiative are invited to submit the applications at the link below. The application period will remain open through January 31st and successful applicants will be notified shortly thereafter. So again, if it's something that you are interested in uh, applying or you know participating with or submitting an application to be a participant of, I'm going to link this uh, page down in the show notes so you can follow the link uh, through the DNR page website and submit your application. They also go on to say too, to submit your thoughts on topics that the groups should consider or ideas for improvements, please email the DNR email dnr-wildlife at michigan.gov include the term dmi in the subject line so if you do have any uh you know even just recommendations or thoughts on some of the topics or some of the things that should be discussed um, with this initiative you can submit those uh, comments and questions you know via email to the dnr and again that email will also be part of the the page so if you do want to submit you can just follow that link Scroll down to the bottom of the page to that email section. All right, let's jump into this next story. This comes from Outdoor Life. This is from Dak Collins, and it was updated on January 17th. Colorado cancels April mountain lion season amid anti-hunting opposition. So let's get into this one here. So Colorado Parks and Wildlife Commission voted last week to cut back on mountain lion hunting by canceling the April hunting season and outlawing the use of electronic calls statewide. These changes passed through the Colorado, Colorado's current mountain lion season, fell well within CPW's harvest goals, and the CPW's wildlife biology point to growing and healthy population of lions in the state. Thanks to decades of closely regulated hunting, the new rules will impact the current season when they go in effect March 1st. Colorado has traditionally held its primary mountain lion hunting season from late November through March and a second season during the month of April in certain units. CPW spokesperson 
Bridget O'Rourke confirmed in an email to Outdoor Life that the commission's decision was reached unanimously. She says the rules change made sense because the low harvest numbers during the April season and the use of electronic calls were not contributing to much of the overall statewide harvest. So this I want to draw attention to almost immediately. If the electronic calls weren't making a significant impact to the harvest numbers, and if that April season was not a heavily hunted season or many harvests were being taken during the April season, why do they need to cancel it? Why cut out that potential opportunity for hunters to go out there and hunt? I got a reason, I have a suspicion as to why that is, but let's get into the article a little bit further. Outdoor Life goes on to say it's unclear how much these rules changes will affect mountain lion hunters in different parts of the state. Electronic calls were already outlawed in all but two Pacific management units, and an outfitter in the Western Slope tells Outdoor Life that it's been years since hunters have had April season in his area. They go on to say, still the timing and reason behind the commission's January 11th decision were concerning to Colorado hunters. Changes to hunting and fishing regulations always draw some level of skepticism from sportsmen, but Colorado's hunting community remains on high alert due to some recent shifts surrounding wildlife management there. Kind of like the reintroduction of the wolves. Uh, last July, Governor Jeremy uh, Polis appointed three new members to the state's Park and Wildlife Commission whose background were more grounded in animal rights than traditional wildlife management. Ah, there's a kicker. So we're getting potential for certainly animal rights activists and more than likely probably anti-hunters in the Parks and Wildlife Commission making decisions regarding hunting. Then in September, anti-hunters filed a highly controversial ballot initiative that would outlaw mountain lion hunting statewide. So certainly a strong push from anti-hunting groups and anti-animal rights members on the Parks and Wildlife. Starting to see a bit of a connection here. Some defenders of regulated hunting worry that the state's Parks and Wildlife Commission could be trying to appease anti-hunters and non-hunting public while ignoring science-based ignoring science that is traditionally grounded or guided wildlife management decisions in Colorado and elsewhere. Uh, see again, right back to right back to the, the always the argument. The anti-hunting groups are not following the sound science from the the wildlife management organizations as well as not listening to the biologists and looking at the healthy popular the populations and how and how hunting affects those populations. Always playing on emotion, not following the facts. To make the joke, they're not following the science. O'Rourke says, this is far, oh. <laughs> so let's go back, I'll, I'll read this sentence again here. Some defenders of regulated hunting worry that the State Parks Wildlife Commission is trying to appease anti-hunters and non-hunting public while ignoring science that has traditionally guided wildlife management decisions in Colorado and elsewhere. O'Rourke says this is far from the case. Is it though? <laughs> of the 11 public comments that were heard during January 11th meeting, five opposed 
the regulated hunting of lions, while six were in support of it. Okay, so so certainly a strong opposition. But what's the reason for opposing the hunting season? Why? That's what I'd like to know. Multiple supporters encourage the commission to include a gender breakdown in CPW's harvest reports so that hunters could better self-regulate the number of females they take. Other supporters voiced their disappointment over the loss of April hunting season, which they say is one of the best times of the year to train hunting dogs. Ah, there's another kicker. Anti-hunting groups are very much against hunting with dogs or utilizing dogs for hunting practices. So one supporter went on to say, nearly everything we know about lions as a species is thanks to the studies that have been done with lions caught using dogs. But it takes several years, hundreds of hours, and hundreds of miles to make a well-trained dog. April is by far one of the best months for training due to the array of different weather conditions and melting snow. The loss of the April season, loss the loss of the hunt of the April season is a loss for hunting as well as biologists and wildlife managers depend on these dogs. Which I think uh, this supporter has a point here. You know, to my understanding, one of the really the best ways or only ways that are really being utilized to be able to truly to survey uh, mountain lions is to use the dogs to treat them so that again biologists can study them and you know, basically to, uh, take samples, whatever they're going to do to, you know, survey the, the population article goes on to say hunting advocates also pointed out the relatively small impact that hunters have on cougar populations, which is often blown out of proportion by those who want to see mountain lion hunting banned outright. They go on to say, this broad vilification of hunters is already underway when CPW's commissioners met for the first meeting of the year in Denver last week. Just one day before the meeting began, cats aren't trophies, an av- advocacy group that's behind the pro- proposed mountain lion hunting ban issued a sensationalized press release claiming that mountain lion trophy hunters in Colorado are outpacing the yearly average of or for killing females, even though the 2023 or the 23-24 hunt season is far from over. The group noted that hunters have already killed 276 lions as of January 9th, with 198 of those taken during the first month of the season. Outdoor Life goes on to you know, add in as well. That number had increased to 367 lions as of January 17th, according to CPW's harvest report, which is updated daily. However, data from previous hunting seasons shows that these numbers fall in line with past harvest numbers. Most importantly, the cougars already taken by hunters this season represent just over half of CPW's 23-24 harvest quota of 674 animals. The agency cap during the 2021-22 season was 634 lines, Hundreds killed 486 that season, well below the threshold to ensure the mountain lion population remains healthy. The agency recorded similar harvest numbers during 22-23 season, according to O'Rourke. So again, not following the science. So basically, the the wildlife manager set out, hey, you know, these are the quotas of the number of mountain lions that can and should come off the landscape. 
to ensure that the population is healthy, not overpopulated, and does not pose any detriment to any of the other wildlife within the area. So that additional April season, as well as the use of dogs, or I'm sorry, as well as the use of those electronic calls, is simply a management tool. The biologists and wildlife managers are looking to have a certain number of animals taken off the landscape, one way or the other. So O'Rourke goes on to say, the number of lions harvested up to this point in the 23-24 season isn't any different than recent averages. CPW sold approximately 2,500 licenses per year on average over the past three years. 2022-23 hunting season, there were 2,599 mountain lions licenses sold and 502 lions were harvested during the whole season, resulting in a 90% success rate. Again, just like any other you know, season, just because you have hunter participation doesn't mean that all those hunters are harvesting. Again, very low success rate. CPT or C, CPW's carnivore and fur bear program manager, Mark Barrera, gave a presentation during the meeting, during which he corrected some of the claims made by CAT's press release. Barrera clarified that mountain lion hunting is heavily regulated in Colorado and that the harvest, harvest limits are set according to population estimates in certain hunting units. CPW keeps close eye on these harvests and closes units when hunters reach set quotas. Again, you're not going to see an over-harvest of these mountain lions because of how closely regulated it is. Mark goes on to say, our lion harvest has been around 500 for the past for the last five years. In terms of seasonal harvest, Colorado is one of the most restrictive regulations. We tend to front load our harvest from late November into December and early January. There are a lot of reasons for that, including the opening day push when more folks are out, snowfall and closure of units after harvest limits have been reached. Brer also called attention to Kat's claim that hunters are harvesting more females than usual since the special interest groups pointed out that 111 of the 198 mountain lions killed between November 27th and December 27th were female. The group called this unsustainable. Ferrer pointed out that during most seasons, approximately 40% of the overall harvest is made up of female lions. However, he explained that more than half of those females are typically sub-adults, which are too young to breed and have little to no impact on the overall population. Again, listen to, listen to the experts on this. They're indicating that, yes, even though there are a lot of... Females being harvested, which would typically, you know, in many, you know, game management, you know, systems, if they're wanting to cut down on the female or on the population overall, you target the females. But he's indicating that most of these females that are being harvested are not even breeding anyways. So it has little, again, has little to no impact on the population itself. It goes on to say, and that the population is thriving. The CPW currently estimates that there are, there are between 3,800 and 4,400 mountain lions in the state. And that number has grown 
since 1965 when CPW started managing cougars as big game. Ah, again, that's key. They started managing them with hunting. Barrera spoke proudly of, of this management work and called the last 50 plus years of regulated mountain lion hunting in Colorado a conservation success story. Who'd have thought? Again, this goes back to the North American model of conservation it is the best program for managing wildlife, I would argue, in the world. Brera also closes out by saying, all former observations point to a growing, healthy, and increasingly stable population of lions in recent decades. Ah, see, he even points out they are growing. So the, inc the numbers are increasing. So hunters are not decreasing the number of mountain lions. It's still growing despite hunting efforts. And by using scientifically supported management thresholds, CPW can provide can provide for lion harvest as a management tool while also having a very robust population of lions on the landscape. Ferreira said Thursday, this is not one or the other. These two conditions are not mutually exclusive. See, again, you can manage the population and have it be healthy, which again, otherwise, again, if he, the alternative is you're gonna have overpopulation, which can lead to an imbalance on the landscape which is going to cause a ripple effect throughout the entire you know, ecosystem. And then the self-correction that nature does is usually much more drastic and violent than overall to the, the, whole, the whole program. And then the article closes out by saying, aside from shortening this year's season and tightening up the pro prohibitions around electronic calls, the wildlife commissioners did not make any other rule changes that would affect mountain lion hunters in Colorado, however, as the debate around big game, big cat hunting heats up in Colorado, sportsmen and other supporters of science based predator management again, key science based predator management should keep showing up to meetings. So, again, I like how they end this call or end this article with a, a call out that. You know, hunters need to show up to these meetings. They need to be in communication with these management wildlife management groups so that they know basically our side of the story. Kind of like what they're saying in that meeting. You know, there's an anti-hunting group or, you know, uh, animal rights groups that are very organized and they make sure they are, you know, present for these meetings. They are heard during these meetings and we need to counteract that. Again, backing the you know basically being a representative of the north american model of conservation you know showing the facts that this is working and that if these people want to keep these animals on the landscape they need to make sure they follow those you know the the time tested you know practices that the u.s has implemented for decades you know hunters aren't going to go back to the market hunting days and hunt animals to extinction anymore you know we want these animals on the landscape just as much as anyone else in fact we probably want them on the landscape even more so look at any wild or any game species out there there are multiple you know conservation groups nonprofits, clubs everything like that that are there to support both the the population the habitat putting funding towards 
researching, you know, and honestly, for anyone that is not a hunter that cares about any, you know, particular animal, you know, you want that animal to be made a game species, you know, basically by having hunters, you know, as your partner and ally in that regard, you know, there's no better group to ensure, you know, the long-term success of a particular animal. Again, that's my opinion in that regard. But again, you have to look at the North American model of conservation. You have to look at these organ, the management, wildlife managers that, you know, are studying these animals, maintaining these surveys, and we as hunters have to work with them. Um, otherwise, again, the anti-hunting group is very strong, very prominent, and they are not going to stop with, you know, just, just mountain lion hunting, just hunting with dogs, just hunting with electronic calls. They will not stop until they close hunting in any means across the country. All right, let's jump into this next story. This is from USA Sports for the win. The hunter who bagged potential record deer under investigation. An Ohio hunter who gained notoriety after killing a potential record white-tailed deer last month during the archery season is at the center of a poaching investigation. Ohio Department of Natural Resources on Tuesday confirmed that its Division of Wildlife is investigating allegations that Christopher J. Alexander, 28, failed to obtain written permission from owner of the private land in which the deer was harvested, which is interesting. Uh, and, you know, kind of a backstory on that. Uh, from what I read in the report is that he was actually hunting his sister's property of about 30 acres. Again, I don't know. You know, initially reading it, it seemed kind of kind of weak that they were going after someone for uh, for this access by not having uh, written permission, especially if it's his sister. Now, I haven't seen any reports as to kind of what his sister says or what her side of the story is. Now, and if she, you know, if he had gotten actually gotten permission from her or gotten verbal permission from her or if. He didn't have permission from her and he was hunting there anyways. You know, I unfortunately, there's no uh, additional information in regards to that. So it seems kind of weak that they're going after someone over that, especially, you know, they would have had an opportunity to talk to his sister and she could confirm or deny if he had, you know, permission to hunt there. So I suspect that it had something to do with that they're looking at um, you utilizing that uh, or utilizing that as a stepping stone to do a further investigation into, you know, something that they may suspect else had been going on. Go on to say, while the investigation continues, Ohio wildlife officers have seized the antlers, cape, and hunting equipment associated with the alleged unlawful taking of the deer, the DNR stated in a news release. Article goes on to say, according to Outdoor Life, hunters on social media, forums, have expressed suspicion that the deer might have been harvested illegally at night since published photos show Alexander posing with the buck where were taken after dark. Alexander's explanation, according to Outdoor Life, was that the deer was harvested during legal hours, but the photos were taken late after a friend's girlfriend arrived with a camera. So again, this is interesting too. I had read, um, I believe it was from the Outdoor Life uh, article 
might have been another one that potentially the deer was harvested during a morning hunt. So again, raised a little bit of suspicion as to why they waited so long to take photos um, of the deer. Now again, it could have been a while for them to recover the deer. They may have waited, waited it out uh, to make sure the deer expired. But it did seem kind of uh, suspicious that you know they would wait so long to take photos. They go on to say the DNR did, did not mention allegations of after hours hunting. So again, if they're not suspecting any other you know foul play in regards to this deer being harvested, it's very weak of an argument to say that you know they're going to seize this deer um, for the simple part, fact that he did not get written permission from his own sister to hunt on her property. So again, I, I wonder if there's more to it, but unfortunately the the DNR, the Ohio DNR hasn't released any different additional information regards so, and I have not seen any updates, um, you know, online at all. The agency stated that simply that the investigation was launched after information was provided alleging that Alexander failed to obtain the lawfully required written permission prior to hunting on private property. Again, you know, I'm curious as to who reported that he didn't get permission. I wonder if that came from the sister herself or someone you know that she lived with or something like that um because otherwise it doesn't make much sense as to why that's such a big deal if he had you know potentially verbal permission again uh, outdoor life cited an expert reported that the buck w warranted a green score of 206 and 7 eighth inches so most definitely a very 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 large deer with that preliminary score, the publication continued. The buck would have the would have the potential to be the number one typical whitetail taken in the state of Ohio, and the number three typical buck taken in North America. So very serious implications if indeed this deer was taken illegally. You know, again, a deer of that caliber. There's a lot of money involved in 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 that buck. So again, it's very a uh, serious implication if this deer was taken illegally or not. You know, there's big, and they say Alexander faces a significant fine, at least if found guilty of illegally harvesting a buck. Again, if he if that buck was illegally harvested, then there's no record, there's no potential for the uh, money for him. Again, that potential for you know big money having a buck of that caliber you know, could lead to someone, you know, making a bad decision and taking the buck, um, you know, making a bad call and taking the buck when they shouldn't have potentially. So again, more to come with this. I'm sure as the investigation continues or probably when it probably ultimately when it reaches this conclusion, will we find out more. All right. So let's jump to a, a, a more fun story or a, a, a more upbeat story. Let's get into this next one here. So this comes from the Chicago Sun-Times by Dale Bowman uh, on January 12th. An Indiana record burbot gives a chance to dive into the most unusual freshwater fish. <clears throat> so they start out, go perch fishing on Lake Michigan and catch a record burbot? I'm shocked as everyone else, said Anthony Burke, who made his first burbot something special. He was fishing for perch Saturday with his brother Matt in 60 feet of water in Northwest Portage when he caught an Indian caught the Indiana record burbot of 14 
12.36 pounds. Lo and behold, I got a nice fish, he said this week. Bert caught his fish on a homemade perch rig with two-inch soft plastic on the bottom. Bert goes on to say, it fought for a while, but didn't feel like a salmon, kind of kind of rolling around like a catfish, he said. As soon as you got as soon as it got to the boat, I knew I had something. He weighed it at 14 pounds 7 ounces at Sportsman's Den in Cedar Lake, then reached out to the Indiana Department of Natural Resources, Lake Michigan Fisheries biologist Ben um, Dickinson, met him Sunday at the DNR offices in Michigan City, where the 37.25 inch burbot was certified and officially weighed. Philip uh, Dirks caught the previous Indian record burbot 11 pounds 4 ounces on January 10th of 2023, which that's an interesting story. If you go back about a year, a, a year back, when Philip caught his fish, he had caught that fish about two weeks after another fisherman um, had just broken the burbot record i believe it was in the 10 pound range uh again just a couple weeks prior which that record i believe was held for about 32 years before last year so a good number of uh record-breaking fish being caught uh in recent times here and they asked uh how he celebrated um burke said i cooked up the perch i caught and had a couple of beers <laughs> all right True fisherman there for you. So they go on to say there's been a string of record burbot in the past in the last decade in southern Lake Michigan, which I just covered of you know just over a year ago. There was two records broken um, before this one here. Dixon says they like cool water and generally remain deep, but they spawn in the winter. So after the winter cools off, or after the water cools off, they come in close closer to shore feeding and also spawning. Probably not getting bigger so much as with our recent mild winter weather, a lot more are getting caught, which ups the chances that a potentially large one will be caught. So again, then the article goes in a little bit more depth of some of the other burbot uh, records um, for both Illinois, for Illinois as well. Again, in that same general area, just depending on where those boundary waters are. They talk about how the, the Illinois record burbot is 11 pounds, uh, 12 ounces, caught December 20 or December 7th of 2020. This wraps up the stories for this episode. So I hope you found these uh, stories interesting. Again, this is kind of one of the an episode where I just want to highlight some some news that comes across on the conservation front. You know, again. A couple of them, are kind of, one of them is kind of fun with the, the record fish. A call to action in regards to the Michigan um, Deer Management Initiative. And then a couple of things to keep an eye out for. Um, again, on the Colorado front with the mountain lion hunting and the the push of the anti-hunting groups. And, you know, again, you know, in that regard, you know, us as hunters, we need to stay united and support each other across the country um, again, anti-hunting groups are very well organized and they're not going to stop pushing until, you know, we basically have nothing else. This is going to be a, essentially a fight of, you know, it's the death of a thousand cuts. They're just going to chip away at 
you know, our hunting rights and again, not using science based uh, arguments to defend their, their, or their, their stances is, you know, again, mostly emotional based and they just don't like uh, hunting. And then the last, and then of course the potential for the record buck that, you know, may, may or may not be. So if you like the, the, the framework of this episode, if you want to hear more uh, episodes like this, let me know in the comments or reach out on social media. I'd love to hear your thoughts on these stories, or if you have a new story that you would like highlighted or think that should be on the show, send those stories again to mihunting at mihuntingpodcast.com. And with that, as always, get out there, be safe, and have fun.